On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas halls, on the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas halls, we roll along. And we do roll along. Thanks for tuning in and telling a friend that you hang out here on the other side of Texas. I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson as we go along broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios. Racer Car Wash voted Lubbock's Best Wash for five years running. Stop into one of five convenient locations for across Hub City for the best wash around. See your best location for best wash guaranteed at racerwash.com. You know, something that's kind of been grinding my gears. I bought a Toyota Tundra. I was sideswiped. I was going home from the radio show, and I was on Avenue Q in Lubbock. If you know Avenue Q, it it uh, is a it's almost a highway. I was going over the overpass, and some people jumped out from a stop sign and T-boned me, and it was just a downpour outside when they t-boned me in my ford f-250 7.3 liter a classic it was a 2002 i kept it up to snuff up to par and that accident totally it was they were in a tahoe and they t-boned me pretty sad circumstance and um, had to go out, got my insurance money, and then we paid cash to get a new, uh, not a new, a used Toyota Tundra. And I've got a theory on my Tundra that I need to tell you guys about. My Tundra, I'm absolutely convinced, was owned by somebody previously who weighed at least 400 pounds. I would say 450 pounds. And let me tell you why. Where you pull the seat belt out, it's almost like it's carved in, like where the side of the seat belt comes out of the side of the vehicle. It's it's like engraved. And the seat belt would have to come out like I don't know, 16, 20 inches in front of me. Somebody morbidly obese, I'm just going to call them morbid, the morbidly obese, owned my truck before. And this is my other circumstantial evidence. My seat creaks every time I make a turn, whether it's left or right, and sometimes whenever I stop hard, sometimes whenever I take off fast, the seat creaks and I've gone in to have it fixed and what they've told me is you've got to buy a whole new it's not just one part 
It's the whole seat. And I know that I'm talking about first world problems right now. But whenever your seat creaks every time you make a turn. When your seat creaks every time uh, you stop or start fast. It's a little bit problematic. So, given I don't play a detective, I'm just one on the radio, but every time I start and stop in that vehicle, I think about morbid, the morbidly fat guy who had the truck before I did. And I hope he's happy in his new vehicle. I don't know what it is, but I hope that he is happy because um, I'm stuck with a creaking seat and a seat belt that wants to fit 20 inches further and I'm not small some people would call me fat I can't imagine how big that dude was uh, these are some things going through my head right now so far as you listening and wanting to be plugged in um, I've got a question about Kel Seliger we got Ross Ramsey coming up about uh, seven minutes from now as we broadcast live, I've got some questions. Number one, Kel Seliger removed from the higher education coordinating or higher education committee in the Senate. Here's my question. How much money did John Sharp raise for Dan Patrick at the fundraiser? That's something that we're looking into here on the program. And I ask that question because of this. If you want to make the vet school to be a hill to die on, how much money's in the kitty from Texas A&M for you not to? Because before all the Kel Seliger spat, if you're just listening to the program, go back and listen to the podcast from yesterday. Listen to Ross Ramsey coming up. Before the spat between Kel Seliger and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick there was for, and I appreciate all the people who listen in that office now by the way the Senate's base budget had put up 4 million dollars 4.17 million dollars for the vet school now what's known is this The Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board wants to see the House and the Senate pass a $17,350,000 appropriation for the vet school, which is Tech's full asking price. So it was only $4.17 million, and it had a writer on it that said that these funds will be distributed if the coordinating board gives approval. Now, I've talked to umpteen people over the past couple of weeks who say this, that John Sharp has said that the Chancellor of Texas A&M, John Sharp, has said that he will lay down on this if it goes to the Higher Education Coordinating Board. And... I think the reason he's saying that is because John Sharp has the coordinating board iced. 
He's got them singing that battle hymn, that Aggie war hymn. And, but it just makes me go back to this on the higher education, or on the higher education committee. I always want to say higher education coordinating board. That's the credential bearing board. Um, if you're John Sharp, do you want Kel Seliger, who's based out of Amarillo, to be the chair of higher education? I don't think you do, because then the committee chairman can hold up pieces of legislation that are important to you. Uh, that he didn't want him to have any leverage, and I think that I think it's beyond. I think it's beyond rumor to say that it's a plausible theory that John Sharp didn't want Kel Seliger in that role, and that's the way things rolled from there. And that's what we're going to be looking into, because we know that John Sharp and Dan Patrick are both friends with Empowered Texans. Empowered Texans tried to get get Kel Seliger defeated and have been friends on occasion at least their spokesperson has sat in Michael uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan has sat in John Sharp's booth and I think it's plausible to say that there's a triumvirate that's working against the vet school and getting Kel Seliger off of higher education was number one this all predated the skirmish that we're going to get into with Ross Ramsey coming up. But it's what I want to kick off this program with and say, I think that there's smoke and we're going to be looking for the fire right here on the other side of Texas, which is what we do. Stick with us. Quickie break. We got Ross Ramsey coming up on the other side of the other side. Be right back with you. It's loud enough, you gotta yell He is the executive editor of the Texas Tribune. He is Ross Ramsey. Ross Ramsey, how are you today, my friend? Doing great. How are you, sir? I uh, need to lay down on your political couch to understand what's going on, buddy. <laughs> it's just the Texas legislature. It's all you know. It's a laugh a minute over here. Uh, tell us. Let's just get out of the gates with this. I covered it a little bit in the opening, but. Tell us your general thoughts on, I know that you got a new piece up at TexasTribune.org, but give us your thoughts on Kel Seliger and the Lieutenant Governor. Have you ever seen anything like this, Ross? You know, I've seen tips before. You know, they've both, you know, they're both doing things that I've, you know, not seen Lieutenant Governors or Senators generally do. You know, you have a senator who's been sideways with the lieutenant governor before the lieutenant governor's top political guy alan blakemore ran the campaign of a guy named victor leal from muleshoe against kel seliger in the republican primary last year that's a pretty good sign if you're a republican senator uh, that the lieutenant governor is not happy with your work uh, now they both said both kel seliger and dan patrick said patrick himself stayed out of that race 
and you know kind of hung it on Alan Blakemore, but still had the overtone of you know the the lieutenant governor's main political guys helping your opponent, and you start there. Kel Seliger won that race, uh, got back into the Senate, uh, so he's back. And the question is, how are things going with those two? Uh, they had been warring before that race about um, Seliger at the Higher Education Committee, where he was chairman. And the speculation around Austin and around the Senate, frankly, was that Seliger was going to lose the higher ed chairmanship um, because he wasn't, you know, in line with what the lieutenant governor wanted to do. So the lieutenant governor taking away higher education was not a big surprise. Uh, it was a bit of a surprise, mild surprise that he took Seliger all the way off of that committee, a definite surprise that he took him off of the finance committee, which writes the budget, and a surprise that he took him off the education committee, uh, partly because one of the things the two had been fighting about was education funding and specifically vouchers. So, you know, there's a pile of things here, and you can say that when the lieutenant governor did the committee assignments, uh, he was punishing Seliger. Now, it's not unusual for a lieutenant governor to, to do something like that. It's a little unusual for a senator uh, to say anything out loud, particularly in the media, but Seliger did. He told one of our reporters that, you know, he thought um, he was happy to have the Agriculture Committee and thought that was important to West Texas, but um, thought that uh, lose, taking him off of finance was a disservice to the people in his district. The lieutenant governor's office responded through a spokeswoman, an advisor to the lieutenant governor, who said, well, if he doesn't want agriculture, if he doesn't think that's important, you know, we'll just find somebody who does like it. Seliger responded, you know, you were in the middle of this because he was talking through you at this point. Um, Seliger responded that um, he would, I can't remember the phrase, you might, introduce his uh, her lips to his derriere, and um, the lieutenant governor responded to that by calling it a lewd remark and um, taking away his chairmanship of agriculture. So now you have a senator who has been completely defrocked in a Senate where the lieutenant governor is a Republican and needs every Republican vote on some issues and has now put one in jeopardy. So you could say that both of them have put themselves in kind of a pickle. So how did, does this is a question I've gotten umpteen times. Has Seliger made himself a larger figure or a smaller figure in the Senate at this point, given how crucial his vote is? Today he's a smaller figure, uh, but it depends on what comes up and when it comes up, you know. Today, you know, two days ago he was a guy with a committee. Today he's a guy without a committee. That's a but wasn't was right? it a committee, though, Ross? I mean, I don't want to yeah, get into it. Yeah, it really is a committee. Well, it is a committee, yeah, but, but I think from where I speak and I talk with guys today, an agriculture committee at the state level is just a committee that says, hey, keep your nose out of agriculture. It's not a federal it's not a federal committee. It, it, it can't drive policy. It seems like a made-up thing. In my mind, the lieutenant governor made up a committee because he needed somewhere to stick Seliger. Well, you're either in the leadership or you're not, and now he's not in the leadership. And okay, you know if the, you know the the I think the position you take 
from like an institutional standpoint is that you know there are a certain number of committees in the Senate there are fewer committees than there are senators and so getting a committee is a plum and it puts you in the leadership in some form or fashion this committee may be more important than that committee but no committee having no committee is a lesser job than having any committee and and so that's the first day take on this the second day take on this is you know is Sellerger going to be a reliable vote when Patrick needs him and when their sort of mutual interest overrides whatever Seliger's position might be. So, so in a in a case where Seliger is on the fence on a vote where the lieutenant governor needs every Republican, if Seliger was part of the leadership and owed something to the lieutenant governor, he might say, "Well, I'm on the fence. I'll give that vote to Dan Patrick." Now he's in a position where he doesn't have to give that vote to anybody, and he can just vote, you know, however he wants to. And on that day, he becomes a powerful member of the Senate because he can make something fly or not fly. So your question kind of has two answers. Today, he's weaker because he's not in leadership. As circumstances develop, as this thing unfolds, um, he's going to have moments where he might be a very important vote. And, you know, they're going to have to find a way to accommodate each other or to keep fighting. I heard this today from somebody down in the Beltway. There is no calendars committee in the Senate until now, and that calendars committee is called Kel Silliger. Um, what do you make of that? I don't think that's right. I think it's going to be right on on some votes. Uh, most votes are not straight party votes, and you know that's going to be true on the on the situations where you know you have to have 19 votes in the Senate to take up legislation for consideration and most of what the legislature does is not democrat versus republican it's you know different it's you know maybe urban urban versus rural or trial lawyers versus business or you know any kind of an any number of ways to split things up and so seliger might or might not be the 19th vote that you need to make something happen or the or the uh, on the other side the 13th vote that you need to stop something but on those issues where he's that guy, he'll be powerful. He's not the only one. The calendars committee in the Senate is really the lieutenant governor because he decides which votes, which bills are coming up for consideration by the Senate, you know, which votes to put in front of the Senate to ask them if they've got 19 votes to proceed. Yeah. He is Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. Let me throw this one at you. Talk to us a little bit about unfunded mandates and the role that the governor plays in it now, Ross. So there's been this fight, as you know, over the last two or three sessions. A lot of people have been paying attention to this, where the legislature has uh, debated whether state officials should limit the allowable amount of property tax increases at the local level without a vote. So they're basically saying, should your local officials be able to raise your property taxes more than X percent without asking you? Last session, the House said, you know, if it's over 6%, they ought to ask voters. The Senate said if it's over 4%, they ought to ask voters. They couldn't get together on a bill, and the governor came in and said, well, you know, really, you're both wrong. It should be 2.5%. Um, so the issue here is whether they should limit 
local revenue. The cities and the counties and the hospital districts and other special districts came back and said, you know, you shouldn't be able to do that. We already have um, elections and voters already decide how this is going to go. And besides, you keep sending us all these things to do without sending money. And part of the reason our taxes are going up is because of your unfunded mandate. And that's been a pretty effective argument uh, on some level. It's one of the reasons the legislature hasn't passed a bill yet. The governor came out in his inauguration speech, and we'll probably hear more from him about this as, as we go along. But he said in his inauguration speech that the state ought to abolish unfunded mandates. And if he's serious about that, that either means stop requiring local officials to do these things altogether or send state money along when you require them to do these things. You know, one of the one of the big ones is who pays for indigent defense when someone's accused of a crime and can't afford a lawyer. And right now the state makes up, uh, I think it's about $40 million out of about a quarter billion dollars of total cost. So the mm. local officials around the state have to local taxpayers have to pay the other $200 million. Um, if the state was serious about stepping up, there's that one's got a pretty big price tag on it. And there are other bigger ones along the way. You know, there's jail costs. There are uh, mental health costs. There's all kinds of things that the state requires local governments to do but doesn't send the money along to help pay do, to do them. Yeah, so the governor is stepping into the fray to be an opponent on unfunded mandates. Well, he sounds like he's taking the cities and the county's side, uh, you know, to some extent, just by saying, you know, we ought to outlaw these things. And okay, um, right. And if and if they outlawed them, then they wouldn't be on the hook. And the state could say, we're going to limit your revenue, and he would have taken away the argument that. Um, the state's requiring them to spend money without giving them the means to raise it. Hmm. See, and that's where I say the other okay. That's that's the deal with talking with you, Ross, is I'm okay, and then there's a semicolon, and then it's like, okay. That's the way these conversations work. As we talk with Ross Ramsey, as we do on Wednesdays here, House appointments come out. We know who the lieutenants are and who the lieutenants aren't at this point. What stuck out to you today as the House appointments, committee appointments came out? You know, there are a lot of new faces. Uh, you know, the thing that really stuck out is there, you know, you have a new speaker, and on some level you, you know, you think that there might be some changes because the new speaker is going to have different friends than the old speaker. And the day they name the committees is when you find out how big those changes are. And the changes are pretty big. There's some big, uh, there's some new names in here, uh, some interesting players, um, some players from, you know, um, your part of the country. Dustin Burroughs got a very important committee. You know, the four big, sort of big, big yeah, committees in the yeah. Texas, the four big committees in the Texas House are Appropriations, which writes the budget, Ways and Means, which is where tax bills start, calendars, which is the committee that says uh, which bills you're going to take up and when you're going to take them up, and state affairs, which is a repository for a lot of stuff that, you know, is important and big and doesn't have a specific place to go. One of the sort of famous chairman of state affairs along the way was a guy named Pete Laney. You may remember him. Mm. Um, so Dustin Burroughs got 
the State Affairs Committee, which was a surprise to a lot of people. Or Ways and, and, ways and Means. Him, uh, sorry, Ways and Means. It puts him in a place to uh, play a big hand in this uh, property tax fight that the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker say is one of the two items they want to get done this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then for price yeah. on calendars. Right. Or price on calendars, that's a huge committee. That's the one that controls the flow of legislation in the House. A lot of bills uh, go into the calendars committee and never come out. It's kind of the Hotel California of committees. Uh, (laughs) And and they decide when bills do come out, how they come out and in what order, and whether they're, you know, all alone where they're really going to get considered or whether they're in a pack of bills that will never see the light of day. Yeah, and then state affairs is... I don't have it off the top of my head. Uh, I'm suddenly blanking. But, the, uh, you know, you go through these committees and you get a bunch of, of new faces and new names, and, um, you know, I don't have it in front of me either, so we're, we're just going to have to suffer out here. But, oh, um, that's all right. The whole list has 34 committees on it, and, you know, Bonin has named a bunch of people to committees that you didn't expect. He's displaced some people. Drew Darby, who was a big opponent of his, or one of the probably the fiercest, or the or the most likely alternate to him as speaker, uh, got demoted in a lot of ways. He's not a chairman of a committee now. Um, that's to be expected in these things. And from here, we see how it plays out. We see, you know, who's um, who really knows what they're doing and who doesn't really know what they're doing. Yeah, uh, it's Dade Phelan. Is uh, thank you, Daniel. Dade Phelan, for, sorry for efforting there. Who's also, you know, Phelan is a is a is another new face. He's another guy that, um, you know, probably wasn't on most people's maps. He wasn't in the leadership in Joe Strauss's house. The committee chairman's dinner, uh, that's a kind of a regular feature of a regular session of the legislature, is going to have a bunch of new people at the tables, and that's where Dennis Bonin is going to, you know, exercise a lot of his power and try to get a lot of, you know. See how, determine how the house moves. Yeah, um, Ross Ramsey, ex- executive editor of the Texas Tribune. Uh, Ross, whatever, give us some closing thoughts here over the next minute or two. You know, we've got uh, the committees in both the House and the Senate are set now. They will begin referring bills, and you know, if you know, legislative session starts a little bit like a roller coaster. You're all excited and you get to that first hill and it kind of goes click, 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 click up the hill. It seems like forever. And then the thing goes really fast. We're in the uphill part of this, Um, but it's going to speed up pretty quickly. The committees are named now. They will start sending bills to the committee. They'll start meeting, hearing testimony. The governor will give a state of the state speech on February 5th, when I think he's going to spell out some of the things that he wants to do, probably be more specific about a school finance plan and a property tax plan. And then this thing's going to accelerate very quickly. And, you know, the all the beginning stuff in the legislature, you know, the fixing to part is going to be over in a minute, and the actual doing will be underway. Hmm. And you can follow it all along there with Ross Ramsey. You can follow him on Twitter at Ross Ramsey busy day here uh, at the program. Busy couple of days. Appreciate you making time, buddy. Always a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you next week. Ross Ramsey, ladies and gentlemen. Going to get into a quickie break and 
get back in with the program and the saints want to file a lawsuit and candy hearts aren't going to be around this uh valentine's day and i'm not sad about it i'm not sad at all i don't like those things um get into that in a little bit more as we roll along here on the program shake the dirt off your shoes come over take a seat knock that chill off your bones got food on the fire can i get you some to eat make yourself at home yeah i'm on the run i'm looking out searching for something that i still care about i'm looking up to the sky Um, Sherry texting in saying that's a great conspiracy theory on John Sharp and Kel Seliger, higher education. Sherry, I don't think it's conspiracy. I think that it's just a matter of going through, and I don't know if you meant that as a slide or not. I'm going to, my New Year's resolution was to give people the opportunity to meet my worst expectation so i think that it's a matter that has to be looked at and follow the money where's the money and how much money was raised for the lieutenant governor and it makes a lot of sense to get kel seliger out of that position something that I've been looking at, speaking of positions, I don't know how many of you watched the NFL last weekend, but this from Yahoo Sports, the world spins forward, but some New Orleans Saints fans wanted to go backward. NBC affiliate, excuse me, NBC affiliate, WDSU, first reported on Monday that a Saints-related lawsuit has been filed in New Orleans Civil District Court. The suit seeks to have the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, enforce a rule that would allow the end of the disputed Saints-Los Angeles Rams game to be replayed due to the missed pass interference call in the fourth quarter. You saw Hulk Hogan, if you're on Twitter, Hulk Hogan posted a a photo of him photoshopped drop kicking Michael Thomas on the sidelines a wide receiver for the Saints that's that's good fun the Saints lost that game in overtime and many fans have missed have blamed the missed call according to the New Orleans advocate Saints ticket season holders Tommy Badeau and of course his name's Tommy Badeau B-A-D-E-A-U-X and Candace Lambert hired personal injury lawyer to file a lawsuit against the NFL and Goodell on their behalf and on the behalf of the entire Who Dat Nation. The suit claims the Saints fans suffered incredible damages from the missed call, including mental anguish, emotional trauma, loss of enjoyment of life, and more, including a loss of faith in the NFL. Here's a snippet of the damages section via the advocate. As a direct result 
of said incident. Plaintiffs <clears throat> herein have been left bereft and with no faith in the National Football League for fairness despite the league's own rules to correct such errors along with emotional anguish, monetary loss for ticket holders whose purchases uh, who purchases tickets with the presumption of integrity and fairness. Who knew you could sue the NFL over loss of faith? Once people realize that, the NFL will be up to their necks in lawsuits. The suit doesn't specify any recourse, financial or otherwise, but the advocate reported that the suit did note Rule 17, Section 2, Article 3 of the NFL rulebook, which gives Goodell the power to have a game or part of a game replayed due to, quote, extraordinary circumstances, a blown call from extraordinary is far from extraordinary, but some faint Saints fans obviously believe this particular blown call is different than every other blown call that has ever happened in the NFL. So, Saints fans, <clears throat> are they overreacting? Sore losers? I don't know. But I think it's fascinating that we've got that kind of lawsuit up in the courts right now and see how the NFL begins to deal with that. You know, Ross brought up the name of Dustin Burroughs, somebody who's not always been one of my favorites, but somebody who I think deserves some credit at this point, um, has used a position as caucus chair of the Republican caucus and done it pretty effectively. And I mentioned him yesterday, and I'll mention him again here. The criticism has been effectivity, but I think certainly effective whenever you look at Ross Ramsey, delineate the four big committees and to be named one of the four big committee chairmen. Um, and, you know, hats off to Dustin Burroughs, so you can't say otherwise. Um, that, you know, things can change in in a heartbeat. Um the speaker can change. There can be, you know, all the dynamics that we've gone over with uh, Kel Seliger. Things can change, but for the time being, hats off to Dustin Burroughs. And um, I don't want to go through the whole diatribe from yesterday, but it has certainly been effective. Uh, one other thing I want to get into here in this break is America's favorite Valentine's candy is unavailable this year. How did this happen? These candy hearts with messages won't be available this year. Sweethearts, the conversation heart candy is missing from shelves this Valentine's season after its original producer went out of business last year. Even though consumers might think chocolate when it comes to buying a Valentine's gift for a loved one, CandyStore.com reported that Conversation Hearts were the most popular candy for 2018. The popularity of the candy didn't keep its original producer, New England Candy Confectionery Company, also known as Nico, 
from going out of business in July. Roundhill Investments bought Nico in an auction but sold its Nico wafer brand and sweethearts to Spangler Candy Company several months later. Spangler's best known candy is the Dum Dum Lollipops who amongst us has not bought Dum Dums for their children. The candy company and can I riff for just a second? We just did, speaking of children, three science fair projects for our kids. And we started this like in early December, delivered them this morning. Hallelujah that they're done. Holy cow, it's a lot of pressure being a parent with three kids who are 20 months apart. We've got the 11-year-old and then the two 9-year-olds nine-year-old twins and a whole lot of pressure there if i might say so myself to get that stuff together i walked into school this morning with a big smile on my face delivering our science fair project boards and not just a big smile but a big relief on my face to get those out of our house Uh, grace went on with uh, she measured magnetic objects when um, when there would be a force of the magnet that compelled uh, compelled. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. It shows you the acumen on these projects. But drug the other magnets forward. Uh, Sam put salt in cups and figured out which cup could uh, how much salt within a mason jar would. would bring the ball to the top and Jack did a little magnetic force test use a magnetic force was the name of the storyboard and what a two inch magnet could drag up with regards to half inch magnets and if you're wondering it could drag up its own weight four half inch magnets to a two-inch magnets. The candy company acquired the brands in September and did not have the time to produce the conversation hearts for this Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day canceled. Quote, there are a lot of manufacturing challenges and unanswered questions at this point, and we want to make sure these brands meet consumer expectations when they re-enter the market. Spangler chairman and CEO Kirk Vashaw said in announcing the acquisition the company is planning to relaunch the Sweethearts in time for next year's Valentine's Day Nico Wafers will be reintroduced sometime this year so there's the latest on your conversation hearts there we bring that to you with pride here on other side of Texas want to take a quickie break tell you what we got coming up the rest of the week and next week here on the program stick right with us good stuff ahead right here on the other side
I get a lot of heat for bringing a lot of heat to Republicans, but they are who is in charge in Texas right now. But to be fair, I want to take a moment here uh, before I tell you what's coming up on the program. Um, <clears throat> one of the least credible people leading this country right now is Sheila Jackson Lee. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee from down the Houston way. Um, she is resigning now from two posts after an aide says that she was fired for reporting sexual assault. Dateline Washington, New York Times, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee facing fallout from a lawsuit claiming she fired an aide who said she was sexually assaulted by a supervisor at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation said on Wednesday she decided to resign from the foundation as chairwoman. Miss Jackson Lee, <clears throat> who cannot say two cogent paragraphs. That's my own comment. <clears throat> A Texas Democrat in her 13th term also stepped aside temporarily from an important House Judiciary Subcommittee chairmanship the committee said Miss Jackson Lee made the decision to step aside from both roles as pressure was growing within her own party to account for the claims in a January 11 lawsuit brought by a woman who worked in her congressional office and who said she was sexually assaulted by a Black Caucus Foundation supervisor Miss Jackson Lee has adamantly denied she was fired from for retribution after the woman indicated she wanted to pursue legal action, but she planned to say Wednesday that she would not step aside none the less. <clears throat> Members of the Black Congressional Congress, I'm sorry, Congressional Black Caucus, Foundation Board had given Miss Jackson Lee an ultimatum last week after claims became public to step down as chairwoman or face a vote of removal as soon as next week, according to an official familiar with conversations who was not authorized to discuss them. So, Sheila Jackson Lee stepping down from two posts this according to the new york times hey uh tomorrow on the program we're gonna have some technology thursday with our friend mike bazaar also get in with ken king we'll have uh our friend daniel we're gonna give him the microphone again daniel the digital guru millennial jump in with us on Friday on the show next week. Looking forward to John Cornyn, Will Hurd, uh, Ross Ramsey, uh, maybe Bud Kennedy, a whole host of guests lined up for us next week on the program. Appreciate you tuning in. Appreciate your emails as well. Jay at OthersideOfTexas.com with your thoughts. You can always follow me along on Twitter at Jay Leeson on Twitter and then uh, you can follow
follow the show along on Facebook, Other Side of Texas. Just look for Other Side of Texas at OSTX Show on Twitter. And as always, if you miss an episode of the program, you can always go anywhere you can get a podcast. You can just search for Other Side of Texas, subscribe, leave us a note, and uh, well, I say leave us a note, but you can just go in and leave a comment there, and maybe we'll read it on air from you. Appreciate you taking time. Appreciate you digging what we do here. Until next time, for Ross Ramsey, going to get home, got to get home. Great family, above average dinner waiting for me. Rayvon, buddies, Rayvon, we'll see you next edition of Other Side of Texas right here, broadcasting from the studios where Buddy Holly became famous. KRFE AM 580. See you next episode right here on the other side. It's who we want to be.